Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called, How Do We Love Burma? A Natural Disaster Exposes a Government's War Against Its Own People. This is a guest essay by physicist Brad Keister. Brad and his wife, Katie, worship at Washington Community Fellowship on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Brad's essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 22nd, 2008. After the journey with Jesus invited me to write this essay, I've taken comfort in Dan Clendenin's subtitle to the weekly webzine, Notes to Myself. So I'll begin with a disclaimer. I'm neither a political scientist nor a theologian. I write simply as a Christian striving to make sense of our call in the world in which we live. And so my essay serves as a progress report card of personal lessons I've learned to date about Burma. In recent years, my attention has been directed by several factors toward the country known to many people as Burma, but renamed Myanmar by the military junta that has ruled the country since 1962. Burma has surfaced recently in the news after a devastating cyclone hit the region on May the 3rd. Reports estimate 130,000 people dead or missing and 1.5 million homeless. News accounts describe the efforts of the international community to provide aid and assistance only to be blocked by the government. Many are dying because assistance arrives too late. World leaders have denounced the government and its actions, but there appears so far to be little response beyond the words. Some countries have already withdrawn their supply ships. To begin with, some background. The methods of the junta have been brutal, including ethnic cleansing and genocide. The junta has not, however, been able to dominate all regions of the country. It has formed an uneasy truce with the United Wa State Army, UWSA, representing, ostensibly, the Wa people in Burma though, of course, the latter army has similar methodologies. The United Wa State Army has been described as the largest drug-producing organization in Southeast Asia. Its leaders are under indictment in the U.S. for drug trafficking. Such is the nature of peace in Burma. The National League for Democracy, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, won over 60% of the vote and over 80% of the parliamentary seats in a 1990 election, the first election held in 30 years. The military-backed National Unity Party won less than 2% of the seats. The ruling regime has since repeatedly placed her under house arrest and ignored the election results. Aung San Suu Kyi has earned international recognition as an activist for the return of democratic rule. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. Burma gained some international attention in the fall of 2007 
when some Buddhist monks who were revered in Burma refused ar ar who refused alms from the junta by turning over their rice bowls to protest the drastic increase in fuel prices. The government let the protests, including some large peaceful demonstrations, proceed for a few weeks, but then cracked down brutally, as most outside observers expected. Weeks have now gone by since the destructive storm devastated the region. The government has allowed some aid groups to enter, but with many restrictions and delays. There are many stories of the military co-opting the aid for themselves. <clears throat> Various governments and other organizations may gradually withdraw, and the world press will gradually move on to other stories, leaving Burma to settle back into relative obscurity just as the military dictatorship government would wish. In spite of severe government restrictions, some information will continue to be available, but no longer in the most prominent place of the public eye. Some verses in the lectionary for this week from Psalm 69 are more than apt for a citizen of Burma today. Listen to the words of Psalm 69. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor. In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depth swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. How are we to understand this situation? Here I summarize from the insights of someone who has worked in Burma for over 30 years. Westerners seem to assume in their in interactions with Burma that the government is like that of other nations, that they wish to modernize, for example, and to benefit its people. Instead, Westerners should realize the following four points. Number one, the military government is at war with its people in general and there are no exceptions, but with a focus on ethnic minorities in particular. It has been observed that one of the areas hard hit by the cyclone is inhabited by the Karen people, a frequent target of the military, and that in inaction following the cyclone is accomplishing what they could not easily do with bullets. Number two, the military requires massive arms for this war and is receiving them from several trading countries. Number three, war with one's people means not allowing outsiders to help them. Aid and money should go to the military first. And number four, anyone is expendable. Of course, the case of Burma is in many ways not unique. One can find parallels in Zimbabwe, Sudan, North Korea, North Korea, and Ethiopia just a few years ago, to name some examples. 
This brings us to the title I used for this essay, How Do We Love Burma? For several years, I approached a question like this in a logical, economic way. If I were to give away one more dollar, should I give it to an aid agency or to another organization that works for regime change? It seems like a simple choice, but in the end, it's too simplistic of an approach. Instead, putting together some gentle input from several people who have more wisdom, expertise, and experience than I do, here is what I believe that I've learned to date. Number one, one can't depend upon outside governments to solve these issues, much as many would like. In the eyes of most governments, interventionist strategies have had mixed results at best, and most perceive such strategies to involve too much risk and too little reward. Number two, Christians on the ground in Burma need our full and quiet support. There are many who have been at work in Burma long before the events of the past year. They are allowed to work because they're not directly associated with outside governments and agencies that the military regards as its enemies. Three, there are many in Burma, poor and extremely vulnerable in the face of their government, who will continue to need immediate and long-term aid, no matter how inefficiently it's delivered. Number four, one must be prepared for such inefficiencies, failures, and for a long-term commitment. Western expectations of quick solutions simply fly in the face of reality. Number five, without jeopardizing individuals on the ground, the story of Burma needs to be told. And number six, justice is mine, declares the Lord. War crimes trials can provide a measure of closure, but reconciliation is needed for the long haul. This can help in Burma, although the time for that is likely not now. For most of us, the action will be to learn, pray, and provide support. For some, there may be more unique contributions. An example that is more than 200 years old concerns Josiah Wedgwood, the famous, famous English potter. Wedgwood, who was a staunch Unitarian, became an active advocate of the abolition of slavery in England. Not a politician, Without control of an army or a group of mercenaries, Wedgwood issued a set of plates, cameos, and medallions featuring a slave in chains, surrounded by the words, Am I not a man and a brother? He used his gift to address a heinous practice, and his message went places that few methods would have reached otherwise. I regard Wedgwood's act as a lesson that must be worked out in our time by each of us according to our gifts. The obvious application is one of telling a story, but it also says that each one of us may find ourselves in unique situations with unique gifts to apply to them. The need has never been greater. And finally, for further reading that has helped me, here are some suggestions. 
You may not agree with these authors at every point, but they represent useful background material. Pascal Coutui has a book entitled From the Land of Green Ghosts, A Burmese Odyssey. HarperCollins, 2002. It's a memoir describing one man's experience through the military's brutal response to student protests and his escape from Burma via a Cambridge University professor. Robert Kaplan has a book called Surrender or Starve, Vintage Books, 2003, which is a brief history of Ethiopia under its brutal Derg regime. Desmond Tutu, No Future Without Forgiveness, Image Books, 2000. It pictures the struggles and the victories of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, chaired by Desmond Tutu. And finally, the British scholar N.T. Wright has a book, Evil and the Justice of God, InterVarsity Press, 2006, in which he describes the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as, quote, the most extraordinary sign of the power of the Christian gospel in the world in my lifetime. Brad Keister, How Do We Love Burma? A guest essay by physicist Brad Keister. For books this week, I review a book by David Livingstone Smith. The title, The Most Dangerous Animal, Human Nature and the Origins of War. New York, St. Martin's Press, 2007, 263 pages. In the last century alone, over 200 million people, mainly civilians, have been slaughtered in war by their fellow creatures. It's mind-boggling to imagine what that number would be if we could cal calculate the figure beginning with antiquity. In this book, written for a broad readership, philosopher David Livingstone speculates about what he calls the quote-unquote big question of war. Why do humans kill each other on such a mass scale and with such ferocious cruelty? How and why do we ignore or overcome our deepest inhibitions about taking another's life? Livingstone frames the question as a choice between two broad alternatives. He rejects the idea that war is a matter of nurture, in other words, a learned behavior, or what he calls a mere cultural artifact. Rather, he argues that war is deeply embedded in human nature, that it's innate and, if you will, a natural impulse. As such, war is not so much a pathology or an aberrant choice, it's what he calls, quote, a normal feature of human life, end quote. To make this point, Livingstone appeals to science. Much of his book is not about war at all, but about neurobiology, Freudian psychology, evolutionary biology, anthropology, history, and archaeology. He's a strict materialist who rejects the notion that there's any credible alternative to a materialistic conception of mind. As for ethics, 
he says, quote, the idea that moral values are objective simply does not hold water, end quote. He's convinced that our taste for killing was bred into us over millions of years by natural and sexual selection and a hideously cruel evolutionary process. That being the case, war might be tragic and regrettable, but in my mind, Livingstone has a hard time transcending the conclusion of Schopenhauer, who described nature as, quote, a scene of tormented and agonized beings who only continue to exist by devouring each other, in which, therefore, every ravenous beast is the living grave of thousands of others, and its self-maintenance is a chain of painful deaths, end quote. Which is to say... Life without transcendence, which Livingstone Smith denies, is difficult. David Livingstone Smith, the most dangerous animal, human nature and the origins of war. For film this week, I review a film from Finland called Mother of Mine from the year 2005. When Russia bombed Finland in World War II, more than 70,000 Finnish children were sent to neutral Sweden by their parents to escape the horrors of war. This film personalizes that history by focusing on one family's story. The film begins when Iro Lati makes an emotional return to Sweden as an adult for the funeral of the mother who welcomed him into their home, and with him confessing to his aged biological mother about his lifelong feelings of abandonment by her. The movie then reverts to 1943, when Iro was only nine years old. The Swedish host family Haljmar and Signy had its own motives, both good and bad, for hosting a war child from Finland, and then its own ways of dealing with Eero once he was with them. Eero's biological mother, Kirsti, had her own deep and mixed emotions of guilt, reject, regret, and love, along with horrible choices to make during the war. In between these two mothers is little Eero, who as an adult still deals with the psychological complexities of two mothers who loved him in their deeply human but broken ways. The film is in Finnish and Swedish with English subtitles. Mother of Mine, from the year 2005, from Finland. And finally this week, for poetry, we have a marvelous prayer for overcoming indifference that was given to me by a Jewish friend. The prayer for overcoming indifference is taken from a book by Chaim Stern, who was the editor. The name of the book is called Gates of Repentance, Central Conference of American Rabbis, 1978. Listen to the prayer for overcoming indifference. For the sin of silence, for the sin of indifference, 
for the secret complicity of the neutral, for the closing of borders, for the washing of hands, for the crime of indifference, for the sin of silence, for the closing of borders, for all that was done, for all that was not done, let there be no forgetfulness before the throne of glory. Let there be remembrance within the human heart, and let there at last be forgiveness when your children, O God, are free and at peace. Prayer for Overcoming Indifference Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June twenty second, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.